Good morning, church. I'm going to invite you here in a second to stand and read the scriptures, but I'd like to say kind of with Christian that, um, you know, as you're able, stand. If you're a mom chasing after kids and it's just you're trying to hold on to them for dear life, uh, don't worry about it. If you are unable to stand, don't feel guilty. Um, This is just a time that we respect the word together, right? So let's stand and read the word. Our text today is 1 John chapter 2. Verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. We're covering 12 verses, so let's read this together. This is the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who practices makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Please be seated, and let's pray. Lord, again, we come to your word, joyfully and hopefully, and we pray that you would fill us overflowing this morning with your spirit and give us your truth. We hunger for it. And as always, we pray that you would help us to align our lives with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most profound truths that we find in this passage is that Christians are born of God. Christians are born of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, John tells us it's two things. First, it means we are his children. As I've gotten older, I've noticed that I've become a lot like my dad. Anybody else here have this experience with your mom or your dad? I've started to notice certain personality things and quirks that I share with him. Uh, have you noticed those things too? It's beyond the physical, right? Like you don't just look like your dad or your mom, but you start to like act like them too. Uh, we start to kind of talk like our parents. Uh, we form similar habit, habits and interests. Uh, it's really interesting how God has designed us like that, right? Yeah, kind of funny. And one of the major truths of our text today is exactly that. 
those who believe the gospel are, are called children of God. And it turns out a lot of the same truths apply to our relationship that we have with God as it does to our relationship with our earthly parents. We start to look like him. We start to act like him. Want the things he wants. Verse 28 here is a bridging verse between what we read last week and what we just read. John started that section last week in verse 18 by saying, it is the last hour. Okay, so he's brought up the topic of the end times, and that's where we still are. He's continuing that thought. He says, if we abide in Christ, we can have confidence when he appears. And confidence is set against this idea of being put to shame. And notice the language that John uses here to talk about shame. It's a shame that causes us to to flinch and to flee. It causes us to shrink away from the Lord, to hide. And that's the same kind of shame that Adam experienced in the garden. So the second coming of Christ is a lot like God walking with Adam in the garden and Adam hiding. Some will have confidence and some will have shame. When he sinned, when Adam sinned, he hid himself in fear and shame. He shrunk away. But those who abide in Christ have confidence, which in this context is the exact opposite of that shrinking shame, right? We wouldn't just feel joy at his coming. We would boldly run to him, right? That's what confidence means here. We would joyfully join in with him and and rejoice with him in his coming. And hopefully we all want that. But it raises a good question. If that's our hope, if that's something we want, how do we abide in Christ? How do we obtain it? But well, we've already talked about abiding in Christ so far in the series, right? It's been a main theme of, the gospel, of, of 1 John, of, of the gospel we've been talking about. Those who abide in Christ walk in the light as he is in the light. They love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They confess their sins and live righteously, right? Is all this coming back to mind? And that's exactly where John takes us here in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, so it's pretty simple. Those born of him practice righteousness just as he is righteous. There's a a through theme here of imitating Christ in this whole passage. And I want you to hold on to that thought of practicing righteousness. Those born of God practice righteousness. We'll return to that idea later. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, John goes on a bit of a tangent, okay? So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 are kind of parenthetical to John's whole point in this passage. And he, he's reminded that we are children of God, and he's going to kind of burst out in joyful praise on that idea. He'll return to his main point in a minute. But he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And John can't help himself but wonder at this truth. How much love has God given us? So much that he calls us his children. Our preparation for worship today was that amazing statement in John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. 
Which of us here deserves that? Who here can say they've earned that title, child of God? No one here, right? No one here can say that. And yet through God's amazing grace, we are called children of the living God, co-heirs with Christ, with the Holy Spirit as our inheritance. Praise the Lord. Amen? And John ends this statement with a little phrase of praise. And so we are. I think that should be an exclamation in the ESV. It's, it's not. But And so we are. It's a sure thing. It's not a question of if we'll become a child of God. We are God's children right now. Praise the Lord. Are you a child of God today? That's reason for worship, right? As we'll find out, the alternative is not very pretty. So being a child of God is a wonderful thing. As God's children, we have become distinct from the world. He goes on in verse 1 to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now throughout the letter, John has set up this distinction between those who know God and those who don't. Do you remember some of these opposites throughout the book? John sets up these polar opposites all the time. Those who walk in the darkness, those who walk in the light, those who belong to the world, those who abide in Christ. And today we're going to get another one of those strong opposites, children of God and children of the devil. The world, the sinful realm of Satan's authority, remember that's what he means by world, does not know us because it doesn't know God. And no one who belongs to the world cares that we are children of God. It's not a big deal to them. What would it mean to them? Not much. If anything, belonging to God means the world will start to view us, the ch- children of God, as enemies. Remember chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Right? The two are opposed, belonging to the Father and belonging to the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world doesn't recognize us for what we are. And they might not care that we're God's children, but we don't need their affirmation. It's an amazing truth and one that we should delight in and worship God for. Remember, we are God's children right now, today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. And John says that again in verse 2. But there's more to what he says. He says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Not only are we God's children right now, which is mind-boggling enough, but we will also be made like Christ when he appears at his second coming. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And we'll not always be in this sorry state. Sin has taken a toll on us, right? It's taken a toll on every part of us, including our bodies, including creation. But one of the most beautiful aspects of salvation is that God saves every part of us. 
not just our souls. Sometimes we downplay that. When Christ returns, we will receive a resurrected, glorified body. But John adds something that I don't want to glance over. He says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Praise God. Because we shall see him as he is. Seeing the fullness of Christ in all his glory and majesty is that thing that will transform us. Seeing Christ is the catalyst of our change. And seeing Christ, as Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, will fundamentally change our bodies and who we are. That's wild, right? That's wild. I'm excited for that. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Do you look forward to the day when Christ returns and makes all things new? Do you place your hope in his second coming? Is it something you eagerly look forward to? Does it have a place in your prayer life? John says that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If Christ's return really is our sure hope, then like verse 28, we will abide in him. I'd like to mention that hope for John really isn't the same kind of hope that we typically use in our day-to-day language. Right? We tend to use the word hope like we use the word wish. Right? My daughter, Charlotte, hopes that she will get ice cream today. That's a possibility. But it's not a sure hope. Right? But this Greek word is something much more profound. We might say that this hope refers more to something like a guaranteed investment. Right? We invest in our retirement accounts in the hope of a secure financial future. Okay? But that... That still isn't the same thing, because as we've all known over this last couple of years, retirement accounts can go up and down. This hope that John's talking about, this is an investment into the God of the universe whose plans and purposes always prevail. It is a sure, concrete, unshakable hope, and the only thing that makes it hope is that it's future tense. It hasn't occurred yet but it will occur. Christ has not come back yet, but he will. He is coming. Do you place your hope in that fact? That's the kind of hope we're talking about. And if his return is a guarantee, then we better watch how we live. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, there's a little bit of an interpretive question here with this sentence. What does John mean by purifies himself? Does he mean that uh, the one who hopes then tries to purify himself of sin? Or does he mean that the action of hoping in the return of Christ purifies us? Okay, do we purify ourselves as a result of our hope, or does our hope purify us? Well, I think it's both. 
the one who placed their hope in the sure, concrete return of Christ ought to be killing sin, right? They should put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8. They should walk in the light as he is in the light, as John has already said. Okay, so we should be actively killing sin and purifying ourselves, being more like Christ in how we act and live. It's not a passive thing. But also the one who knows that Jesus is coming back must also know that it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Christ that we can have victory over sin. The, they, they rest. They rest in the finished work of Christ, those who thus hope. Their hope purifies them because they're saved by faith, not by works. So hope's pretty important, right? Where is your hope today? Is it in the return of Christ? The sure, concrete return of Christ, wherein we will be changed, transformed in our bodies. If you've placed your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, your hope, your future hope, should be in his second coming, in the salvation of your body. Because it will happen. You can have that sure hope today if you're a child of God. So what does it mean to be born of God? First, it means we are his children and therefore have a future hope with our Father. But second, it means we practice righteousness. Now, I think it's important that we reread verses 4 through 10. So I want you to stick with me. We're going to reread verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The first part of our text today really honed in on the second coming. But now John returns to Jesus' first coming. Verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the focus, Jesus' first coming. What did Jesus accomplish for us the first time around? And how do we live in light of what he accomplished? So verse 4 starts off in that direction. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is what? That's an important idea. Here John gives a definition for what he means by sin in this section. Sin is? That's the true nature of sin. 
it is lawlessness. And it's not just lawless in the sense of breaking the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments, although it's not anything less than that. This word that he uses, uh, that's used in the ESV to translate his word as lawless, is really a whole way of living. It's an attitude. It doesn't just break the law, it hates the law. Lawlessness is the rejection of God's good standard. It's absolute rebellion against God's rule. So we have this dichotomy in this passage, right? We've already talked about it. John brings it up again. We have those who practice righteousness, as we see in verse 29, and those who make a practice of sin, like here in verse 4. And John says, that those who practice sin are those that have this worldview of rejecting God's law and authority. They're rebels against God. But Jesus appeared in order to take away sin, verse 5. Jesus died on the cross for lawless sinners. Right? So Ephesians 2, Paul can say there that before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. Right? Yet Jesus died for us enemies of God. So verse 6 is a natural and logical conclusion from John's argument. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Christ died to take away sins. If you abide in Christ, your sins therefore are taken away. And so, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It makes sense. It's logical. And yet, it should give us great pause. The statement is true. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. How does that make you feel? Uncomfortable? Uneasy? Guilty? Shameful? Convicted? Sit with that feeling for a second. No one who keeps on sinning abides in him. In his book, On the Mortification of Sin, John Owen, whom I've already quoted and will continue to quote, says this about when we feel convicted about sin. When God stirs your heart about the guilt of sin, concerning either its root and indwelling or its breaking out, be careful you do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. Texts like 1 John 3.6 should stir our hearts toward conviction. We should become more aware of our sin. So be careful you don't speak peace to yourself before God does. And his next few comments don't ease up on this tension. In fact, he presses in really hard. 
with really solid argumentation. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Sinning is of the devil. The devil is that ancient serpent who tempted Eve in the garden. And and those who continue to make a practice of sinning show that they're really of him. But John says in verse 9 that those born of God cannot keep on sinning. They cannot. Wow. Again, I ask you, does a statement like that make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make you feel convicted? When I read something like this, my stomach turns over and my heart sinks because I sin all the time. Like Paul in Romans 7, I'm constantly doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things I ought to do. When I really search my heart, And I really search my conscience compared to the indescribable beauty and holiness of God. I can't help but see my dirty imperfection and my constant sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you see it in your heart too? God is so good and so holy and we are so sinful. And sometimes it's good for us to remember that our sin is a serious thing. It's easy to become lazy in our daily lives when it comes to sin. We don't guard against it. We let it creep back in. We let old habits win the day, right? We give in to temptation to gossip or temptation to lust or temptation to hate because we get comfortable with sin. We think a little bit is all right. But we really need a Savior who will daily remind us of his blood. We need a Savior who has sent us his spirit to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, don't we? Praise the Lord that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Praise the Lord that he took away your sins. And those who are born of God do not make a practice of sinning because they've been confronted with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As John says here, they have the seed of God within them who is the Holy Spirit. Does this section mean that those who are born of God will never commit individual acts of sin temporarily? No. The beginning of the letter is clear, right? When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There should be no one who claims to be without sin. That's John 1. 1 John 1. Those who are born of God may fall into sin occasionally. 
These statements by John here in chapter 3 are not proofs that we can become perfect in this life. But they are clear, very clear, theological statements that those who are born of God are no longer lawless because sin is lawlessness. They no longer rebel against the ruler of the universe. The opposite is true. They are brought into the family of God. They are his children. And God's children make a practice of righteousness. Their lives are characterized then by growth in holiness, not growth in sin. The children of God hate their sin. Sin is not what we are about. We are about repentance in reliance upon God's grace. We are about gradual growth and victory over sin in Christ. Not to earn our salvation, but because we've been saved. Christians shouldn't be willing to give any quarter to sin. We should fight it and rise up mightily against it when we see it in ourselves. And we should be concerned about brothers and sisters in Christ who don't seem to be fighting sin or who aren't taking it seriously. And we should encourage them and help them with their fight. The church of Christ should be a place where sinful people receive grace. Amen? This place should be a place where we help each other be holy as God is holy because we've received his love. And we, we should rejoice with one another when we grow in that direction, when we see sin being killed in our lives. Amen? We are no longer children of the devil. We're children of God. And children of God practice righteousness. Verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Aha. This verse is a helpful reminder that John is writing to his congregation, warning them about those who had left because of false teaching. Remember, these false teachers held themselves up really high on this pedestal, and they began to hate those that they thought were beneath them, those who didn't join in their heresy. These false teachers didn't take sin seriously. They walked in darkness, and they left the congregation. And John is clear that they are not children of God. His statement is similar to Jesus' own statement about how to know who a false teacher is. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And to use John's metaphor, their works show their allegiance. Their works show who they're born of. Now, this is helpful as we discern who to listen to and engage with in the realm of Christian teaching. 
We should beware of those who are unrepentant in their sin because the children of God are characterized by their righteousness and their repentance, not by their sin. So John ends verse 10 with a statement that he'll continue to develop the rest of chapter 3. The children of the devil are those who do not love their brother. It's always come back to that, hasn't it, in 1 John? The crux of the issue the whole time has been whether or not we are loving those around us, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a great place to land the plane. Ultimately, John is concerned with how his congregation relates to one another, especially after this issue of people leaving the church. And now he's concerned that maybe there's more who are going to give in to this teaching. And he wants them to be lovingly committed to one another in, in truth, in the real truth of the gospel. And we should want the same thing, right? Amen? We should want our church to be a place where we can celebrate our mutual love for Christ and salvation that we enjoy in Him. So if you are in Christ, you have become a child of God, and that means you've got a lot of brothers and sisters. Right? You're not an only child in the family of God. And you have an obligation to your brothers and sisters to love them with the knowledge that Christ also saved them. That not just you will receive a resurrected body upon his return, but also your brothers and sisters. And you will spend eternity with them, starting now. And so if you are a child of God, you'll take that seriously. And you will not let sins that have to do with the community creep into your heart. Sins of judgment and contempt. Sins of gossip or deceit or slander. In fact, we will let love be the law of our lives here in the church of God. That's what it means to belong to his family. And we're not always going to get it right. We're going to sin. But when we do, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a route to reconciliation with other people. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel like there's something between you and another brother or sister in Christ today, don't leave today without solving that issue. It's important that we here have unity and love because we're all children of God. Amen? And hopefully we will see through time how each one of us is starting to reflect the nature of our Heavenly Father. We're His children. We have His seed, the Holy Spirit, constantly changing us and getting ready, getting us ready for His great second coming, His next appearance. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word today that was very challenging, that was very convicting, but also incredibly encouraging that we are your children and we have so much to look forward to, 
that you're coming back and you're going to make all things new. Lord, we eagerly await that. And as a church this morning, we pray, come Lord Jesus. Return today if you will. Return soon. And Lord, we ask that in regards to our sin, that you would be forgiving, that you would be patient with us, that we would have a heart of repentance, that you would bring to mind the sins that are hidden from us in our hearts, and that we would be quick to confess them. We know that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so, Lord, thank you for calling us children of God. And Lord, if there is anybody here today who does not know you, who is not a child of God, I pray that by your grace you would save them in Jesus' name. That they could be part of the family. That we as brothers and sisters can bring them in and celebrate with them. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your love. And as we continue in our praise, we ask that would be on our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.